Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 48 of Conquering Columbus. We've got a great show lined up for you today with a Buckeye you should all know well, President Michael Drake. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. And one last thing before we get this episode rolling, conquerors, we want to hear from you. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, conquerors, let's get the show on the road. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. And uh, we're really excited for this episode of the show today. We've got an incredible guest, a uh, man everyone in Columbus should know well, uh, the Ohio State University President Michael Drake. He is the uh, 15th President of Ohio State, and he completed his BA at Stanford University and earned his MD at UC San Francisco. He also holds three honorary degrees and has received numerous honors and awards for teaching, public service, and research, including the Burbridge Award for Public Service, the Asbury Award for Clinical Science. And the Michael J. Hogan Award for laboratory science. 
uh, before becoming president at OSU in 2014. He served as chancellor at UC Irvine and was a distinguished professor of ophthalmology and education. Today, he's also the vice chair for the Association of American Universities, as well as on the steering committee for the American Talent Initiative. Top of all of his accolades in medicine education, President Drake was appointed to the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015. His vision for the university is built around three principles, access, affordability, and excellence. Topics which we will touch on later in the show, and welcome to Conquering Columbus, President. Uh, great to be here. Great to have you mention the Burbage Award, which I hadn't thought about, which is hanging <laughs> up there. So it's, uh, I still have it here in the office. That's great. There's a lot of them. It's probably easy to lose track of them, I could assume. That one I remember because it's the oldest thing that is up there. And what these things mainly represented were the ones that were already framed when we moved here. So the, um, And there were hooks <laughs> in the wall. So I just put them up. So there they are. <laughs> well, that's great. So um, what you know, one of the questions we actually like to start with is... Uh, What's a typical day look like for you? So a typical day starts with uh, uh, texts or emails that I get from mainly my chief of staff, who is, I would say, an early riser. She likes to be up for a couple hours before the sun comes up just to make sure that she doesn't miss anything. And so I, I generally hear from one, two, three people on the staff um, uh, from whatever time I get up. And then so we do that, a few emails, and kind of roll things off. And then the office... Uh, tends to have meetings with internal or external stakeholders or constituents uh, all day. Uh, there's no break. And, um, uh, and, and then in the evening, we have a variety of events, uh, probably five, six days out of seven, there's an event uh, in the evening. So um, it's internal, external, civic campus things uh, pretty much all day. And uh, and then we do a few things. Weekends aren't as jam-packed. We uh, have events routinely on weekend days, but it's not a, a gridlock uh, scheduled all day. So, uh, But it's uh, enough to keep one engaged. So we can get more granular into that a little bit later in the show. I think where we want to kick off, though, is talk a little bit about your childhood and your background. Sure. And then uh, we'll carry up through that. Good. We'll get granular. Uh, so childhood and background first. Uh, born in New York City. It's a city to the... Uh, um, yeah, born in New York, born in Manhattan, and then we uh, moved shortly thereafter to Englewood, New Jersey, which is just across the river. It's a, a little bit, it's right next to Fort Lee, which has now become famous as an uh, inconsistent exit from uh, the George Washington Bridge. So, uh, <clears throat> so right, right, right there in the suburbs of um, New York. My father worked in New York. He was a medical doctor and had an office in the house uh, and then uh, also practiced uh, in Harlem uh, with, where he'd done his uh, final training. And so I grew up there until we were, I was eight years old. And then at eight, we moved to California, moved to Sacramento. And my dad had a different job. He, had, uh, he was a, became a psychiatrist. I didn't realize this fully, but when he was seeing patients in the home in the evening and going off in the daytime, first it was to be a general practitioner, but then he began a residency. So he was going and doing a psychiatry residency. And then he finished that. And as a new beginning, we moved to California and he began practicing as a psychiatrist. And Actually, he practiced uh, uh, his work as a psychiatrist until he was 99, so he had a long, uh, long career uh, uh, doing that. In fact, I have a couple of his things up on the. I have his tuning fork and his desk, uh, his nameplate from his desk uh, there on my bookcase. He uh, passed away in 2000, at the end of 2012, but he had a long and active career and was working at the time he passed away. So he, he really loved that work. Came to California. Um, I. Uh, uh, Went to, to uh, public school in 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 California in, in Sacramento, and 
for whatever it is, it's worth. My birthday is in the summer, so I was a little younger, and then I had a birthday kind of after the end of the year. And then I was good at long division or something, so I was I was skipped ahead a year in uh, in grade school. So it led to me graduating from high school when I was 16, and uh, and then we lived in a place about a half a mile away from a community college. So I went straight to the community college starting in a couple of weeks. And I was there for two years and then transferred to Stanford. Uh, and, um, and then from Stanford went to UCSF for medical school. And um, so all that was in a straight line. So I, when I finished medical school, I was still relatively young. I was 24 when I finished medical school. And then went to internship and residency. And then when I finished residency, I set of circumstances immediately joined the faculty of the medical school where I had done my training. So again, I was, I was younger than the other residents, but I was now the clinic chief. And, um, uh, and so I always, from the beginning, had a little bit of an administrative job. I could talk more about that later if we're going to get hypergranular, but I had a bit of an administrative job from the first day, not through any planning, just through circumstances. And um, so I was doing research and teaching and patient care, but also some level of administration. And the administrative part tended to get a little wider as time went on. And uh, then I was on committees and then chaired committees. And then I had a large administrative job when I was appointed to be vice president for health affairs of the University of California system. And then that led to the administrative job of being the chancellor of the Irvine campus, which led to being the president of the Ohio State University. And here we are. So it was called a kind of a roll forward. Definitely. Yeah. And we're really glad to have you here uh, at Ohio State. I think I can speak for almost all Buckeyes and everybody across the state on that one. But well, Thank um, you. We should have a, maybe a commercial break at that. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's very kind. Um, but uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, were, were there any challenges kind of early on and going through as you're growing, as the administration yes. piece grew, was there anything that was challenging to you that grew your career in a significant way? Or um, what did you enjoy about the administrative side? of it? Well, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, lots of it's like challenging. Uh, you know, every day, you know, there's something generally. And so at the beginning, and I'll, maybe I'll spend a second on that. Uh, so I was planning on finishing residency and then doing a normal postdoctoral fellowship and then thinking about an academic career, straightforward. Uh, in the, I was, uh, but, but I was well known at the place that I was because I'd been a medical student there, that I'd been a resident there, I'd gotten along. You, you nicely mentioned a couple of awards. Some of those were won when I was a resident, so I'd done some research that had worked and done some other things. So I, had a, I was having a good time and things were going well. And the clinic at the university that I was working, was working had a, a director that had been there for 20, 30 years, very senior person. He retired and his job was taken by a junior person. And then a few months later, there was an auto accident in a town where a, a middle-aged ophthalmologist was killed tragically. But the retired person and the new clinic chief who'd taken his uh, place joined together to take over that person's practice. They were all, all three were Japanese. This was the main Japanese, the largest Japanese medical practice and uh, ophthalmology uh, medical practice in town. And, and then that was supposed to be temporary, but the younger person decided to buy the practice and move there. So now there was a vacancy for the director of the clinic that happened around June when I was about to finish residency and become a fellow. My uh, supervisor and the department chair uh, came and said, look, why don't we do this? We'll split your fellowship. So you spend half the time in the lab, but half the time you'll be the clinic director. And, uh, and then instead of doing the fellowship and then looking for a job, you'll be an assistant professor starting Monday, essentially. And I said, well, that's, 
okay, I guess, you know. And so I started, so then, you know, I had um, a budget, I had 15 employees, I had schedules to manage. And the challenge there was, the challenge was that I was on Friday, this happened over about three or four weeks, but on Friday, I was a resident, and as I mentioned, I don't mean to make a big deal of this, but I, tend, I was younger than the other ones just because of the circumstances of my education. And so I was a resident younger than the others. On Monday, I'm supposed to be the boss. And I have faculty working with me, who are my own professors now, are working in the clinic with me as the director. But I look the same to them on Monday as I did on Friday. And so the challenge there was that I had no authority over them. I couldn't make them do anything. I couldn't develop an attitude or, your, you know, that wasn't going to do it. So I had to, if I wanted them to do something, I had to make it, I had to, I had to ask them to do things that they could see were in their own interests. And some of them didn't get along. Uh, and I would need to have the uh, people who didn't get along with each other do something together in a cooperative way to help us move forward. So I had to be really thoughtful about how I would present things to them, what the, what the plans were. And it helped me take a step back, um, uh, take a wide view, think of where I wanted people to be, and then figure out a pathway that they would want to go there and, uh, and come up with what I will summarize as, as good ideas. If I, came with, if I had a bad idea, it wasn't going anywhere because I couldn't force anybody to do anything. So it had to be a good idea, and it had to seem like a good idea to the people I was talking to. And I think that was, that was good training uh, going along. And then people went along with things here and there, and things seemed to work here and there. And, you know, there we are. Here we are. So, I think that's kind of a, a difficult or a difficult process to manage when you're dealing with people who might be older than you, or in terms of more credentials, and you're trying to manage them and deal with conflict resolution and find clever ways to kind of get them to work well together. Yes. Um, I mean, let me say, I don't mean. Uh, it has to be. They have to be authentic. I forget the word I'm going to use. I apologize. But like, are authentic, smart ways to help them work together, because you can't force them. Uh, they don't have to. They don't want to, and um, so it, it took. I think one needs to be very thoughtful about solutions. And you know, Columbus is the smart city. I think it's a, it's it's a good way to approach things. Let's let's use our intellect to try to figure out solutions that are going to really work for us. And sorry for interrupting, but I just wanted to. Um, I, I I I paused at the word clever. Uh, only because if the solutions are not if they are inauthentic in any way, then they will collapse. So cleverness is great. I love it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm told by my wife to try not to be too clever. You know, you know don't, don't, don't think you're too clever. You know, I, I'm told. Um, but I, I think that authentic solutions that, have your, that you've really focused on are the kind of things that people can build, can trust and, and build and work from. And I just, I just paused at that for a minute. So forgive, forgive me for interrupting. No, I think that's good. I think it just kind of pivots into... I guess when you're when you're at that period of your life, do you remember what kind of your focus was personally in terms of? Because it sounds like the way that you managed and the way that you made it through that time and excelled was by focusing on other people and allowing them to kind of deal with situations themselves and find the resolutions within themselves, rather than putting yourself at, at the top. And no, I'd say more. Okay, but uh, I I wasn't I would I was an active participant in those uh, solutions that I'm thinking of, so I wasn't. It wasn't sort of um, uh, laissez-faire, work it out, let me know how it worked out. It, it was really trying to say, here's a, a way I think we can approach this uh, problem, or here's something that I'd like for you to do. Here's why I think that's going to work. 
what I had to do though was to think about why that had to be true. It had to be here's why I think it's going to work for you, and 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 then they had to do that and see that it was going to work for them, and then be able to develop trust that next time I said I'd like you to do that, it would work for them. Over time, and I would say this, I can think of real examples of this, but it would have been uh, 10, 20, 30 years later. Over time, I was talking to people in much more senior roles with much bigger stakes, and I was asking them to do things that they didn't know were going to work, that they, they didn't think were good ideas necessarily and weren't sure were going to work, but they were able to say, I'm going to do it because you asked me to, and it was, that was because the last thing I asked them to do was something that worked. And I think that that started in small ways, that you build trust, you build success, you work towards solutions, and, and then you, you can be an active participant in the decision-making process in a way that, that leads to good results. Yeah, that was great. So, sorry, okay. No, so as you were advancing your career in those aspects, um, you also focused on kind of doing things that um, you enjoyed, you had fun, and we had heard yes. that you were um, at the Rolling Stone concert at Altamont Speedway in 1969. So we kind of want to talk a little bit about that story and what that experience was like for you. Yeah, so you, there's somebody, uh, one of my colleagues heard about that and uh, brought me this poster that you see. So you've mentioned a couple things on the wall, which is great. That's, I appreciate that. Um, so I, you know, I was in Northern California in the 60s, late 60s, and there was an active music scene. I listened to the radio like everyone did. Uh, and uh, there are fewer channels. You know, we, we have this kind of ancient history thing where you had to tune into channels or buy records, you know, things that I have to describe to you in great detail for you to understand um, the, the, the barbaric primitive nature of it. But we would turn to the radio and listen to the radio. And so we all listened to this, a, a, lot, a lot of the same music as what was played. I had an older brother and sister who uh, uh 10 and 11 years older than I was, and so they were more teenage and then young adult listeners, and so I was exposed to jazz and other kinds of music a lot. Tower Records, a, a record chain that started in Sacramento, about two miles from where I lived, grew across the world, actually had 300 stores by the time uh, they kind of got undone by uh, some of the business practices. But uh, uh, So I worked at Tower Records uh, in the summers starting in uh, the, la the latter part of my college career. I worked at Tower Records, and so I listened to a lot of music, and and then the uh, in San Francisco, particularly Bay Area, there's all kinds of performers and performances happening. So, I, with high school friends and then college friends, would go to lots of music at jazz clubs. One a jazz club called the Both And B O T H A N D, um, and saw great people at the Both And, and then we would go to the Fillmore or Winterland and see the different rock and roll bands, and so I did that and. We, this group of uh, friends and I, w I went together to see Rolling Stones, and one of the concerts was at Altamont, so we went to that, Al that concert. And you mentioned fun. So the concerts were, were generally really fun and great, and we were music fans, still music fans uh, today. But that one, that one actually wasn't fun. That was a, a weird, strange uh, day. This year in my course, we teach a course, as you know, in civil rights, the Supreme Court, and the music of the civil rights era and this year the guest so the, the guest uh, um, uh, speaker last year was Mary Wilson of the Supremes it was terrific wonderful person wonderful person wonderful story great this year we had uh, Yorma Kaukonen who was the lead guitarist of the Jefferson Airplane and then also now still performing in a group called Hot Tuna he owns a place called Fur Peace Ranch F-U-R 
PEACE ranch down um, uh, near Athens, uh, Ohio, and still playing music with colleagues and friends, still wonderful fingerstyle guitarist. And Yorma was at, played at Altamont. So I met Yorma in 2016. Um, but I'd seen him first in 1969, although I was a, a great distance away. And he's uh, uh, going to be coming back to Columbus actually this summer. And uh, that particular concert was unusual because it was at, a, at the developing end of kind of the hippie music uh, era. And Woodstock had been the summer before. The Rolling Stones hadn't been in Woodstock, but uh, Peace and Love was supposed to be so great. And so they wanted to have a free concert in Golden Gate Park. Couldn't quite get the permits for Golden Gate Park, so they moved it to a raceway outside San Francisco, about uh, 25, 30 miles. That's where Altamont is. But the original site was supposed to be Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And then just a bunch of bands, uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and uh, who, who else is it? Uh, Santana, The Grateful Dead, those kind of bands showed up, and then the Rolling Stones play at the end of the day. It was um, December. It was the coldest day of the season thus far, and so th this is Northern California, so cold meant that it was uh, 38, 39 degrees or something at night. But I was cold enough, and we, we got there the night before, but maybe one in the morning, with the concert being the next night because you wanted to get close enough. So my friends, we, we drove, we left at midnight roughly to go and find a place to park and then walk forever to get to this free concert and then slept in sleeping bags on the hillside. But my nose was cold when I woke up, I remember. And then you waited half the day for the concert to start, very few services. And then it was a fits and starts, slow concert. And the thing was that for security to be cool, they decided not to have real security, professional security guards, but to have the local Hells Angels be the security and they paid them in beer and and so the hell's angels um drank the beer and believed that the security was enforced by force and so there wasn't much in the way of due process or support of people but they were hitting people and um so there were lots of more than any place i've ever been there were skirmishes or fights or whatever breaking out from time to time here and there throughout the concert and so the concert was stopped multiple times throughout the afternoon with the performers saying, cut it out, and what do you, what's wrong with you, and all that. And then there's another drunken fight, you know, someplace else. There are 300,000 people there, by the way. Um, Rolling Stones came on, uh, and they waited uh, for about an hour, I'm going to remember, from the time the last act played, whoever that was, and the Rolling Stones came on, it was about an hour wait. And, during, and they waited... I felt at the time because they wanted it to be dark when they came on, and so they waited. This was in the afternoon. They waited for sunset, and when it got dark, it then again not, not by Ohio standards, but it got cold again. It was you know 40 degrees sitting outside all day, and that was chilly, and um, so people were kind of uncomfortable. Lots of people were taking lots of who could measure them or knew what they were drugs. Drugs would be, were passed being passed around hand to hand, uh, a handful of different colored pills. I will tell you, I don't have to tell you to uh, take any, uh, but people are taking different kinds of things, so it was a very strange place, and then during their concert, multiple fights, multiple fights, and then a bad fight broke out, and the bad fight we could tell was a bad fight because the where we were sitting, if this were a football stadium, we were sitting about a third of the way up on what had been about the 30-yard line, let's say, and if the, if the stadium were in the end zone, if that wasn't, it was bigger than that, but that's the concept, and around the 10, 12-yard line, where people were packed in like sardines all of a sudden, there was a space the size of this office that was clear, like just a, a big area that was all of a sudden clear. And it was dark, and we could kind of sort of see it, but that just looked really 
like not good, that people were just running away from something. So it all calmed down. The music started again. We didn't know what had happened, but my friends and I were just not having a great time, so we left then. So, so we went to a Rolling Stones-led concert, got to the middle of their set, and left in the middle of their set to, to go home, and then read the next day that um, the guy pulled a gun and stabbed to death. And, you know, so it was a, a so we and we learned that from the newspapers the next day. You couldn't tell what had happened when you were there. But uh, so the whole day had a funny vibe. Hmm. Was was an uncomfortable day, um, uh, and then it ended with us leaving uh, before it was done because we said, you know, uh, enough, let's go. So, so um, that turned out again. We learned more about it in retrospect with the film and everything else that had been done. So long story, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, I will tell. I, there's one. Can I tell one other part of it, if I may. I don't know how you know when your tape is going to run out or whatever happens. I make that's a joke. When I said records <laughs> earlier, I said tape. I just wanted to. I'm some tongue in cheek. That's my wife saying, "Don't be clever." But the. Um, so one thing that happened that day that I remember really well, though, on a different set, different vibe, is I mentioned where we were sitting uh, when the Rolling Stones arrived. Mick Jagger and Mick Taylor, in particular. They came in by helicopter, kind of on a hillside someplace, and I don't want to remember it and get it wrong, but the nearby. And then they walked through the crowd to get to the stage. At this time, this kind of post-Beatles era, that level of rock star was never in contact with regular people. It was a, a never thing. They would uh, be mobbed running down the street, and you know, this is the sort of screaming uh, uh, teenage girls kind of thing. So, so the concept of one of them being on the, on a street with in the public was a as an, was an impossible concept in my mind. So they, but Jagger and Mick Taylor, the guitarist at the time, uh, were walking through the crowd to get to the stage, which was, and we could see this happening. Because uh, as they got close enough to where we were, and what happened was when they would get to a place in the crowd, we were up above looking down, the people there would stand up, move back, and applaud. As uh, uh, particularly Mick Jagger, now Mick Taylor was a little bit in back of him, so he didn't get, he was kind of, a, if there were waves, but he got kind of pinched in the wave coming back together, you know, at the back end. But for Mick Jagger, people stood up, stood back, and applauded as he walked through, and we could see this happening before the people he got to could see it happening. And so it was a stunningly reverent treatment for uh, a person that, I, that is fixed in mind. I, took, I tried to take pictures of it. I don't know where the pictures are, but it was just this amazing thing to see this kind of deification, really, of a person as he walked through a crowd of people who, who stood back to applaud him, and then the crowd would sit down excitedly in back of him. So I do remember that as a, one of those uh, moments that you see something. Yeah, right, that's a pretty incredible story. I, you know, I love hearing about like the Altamont Speedway. Three hundred thousand people is just. I mean, you're talking three horseshoes yes. of people there. So it's pretty incredible. But um, I'd like to move on towards uh, becoming Ohio State president and focus on um, one of the questions I wanted to ask was what was what was kind of the interview process like for Ohio State and what made you want to come to Ohio. I thought you were going to go to, I was 1969, I thought we were going to go to 1970 and talk about Sly Stone and Miles Davis, but I'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll move on. My wife and I, our first, our first date was to go see Miles Davis, so we're, I'm happy that we picked something so cool to do. Uh, it was fun, and we did it on purpose, but we didn't know then, I'm 18, or she, she's 18, I was 20, we didn't know then how cool it would continue to be for all these years later, you know, <laughs> but it was, it was uh, we were happy to do it at the time. Um, <clears throat> 
so the process here was uh, uh, interesting process, great. Uh, over the years, you meet different search firms in a variety of ways. Sometimes you employ them, sometimes they call you, whatever. And I got a call from one of the search firms from that led by a person who I'd um, known from uh, before and who'd worked for us and has worked for us. And so I was very pleased. Uh, uh, and we had a nice rep- – and he said, gee, there's a, they're looking for a, a new president for Ohio State, and I think that this is something you ought to really think about. And part of the circumstances, a couple of circumstances, one is that we were uh, entering our ninth year at Irvine. And I had always felt that the uh, right time for one of these jobs was about eight to 12 years. It takes three, four, five, six, seven years to kind of get things going. And more than a dozen years or so, I always felt was maybe you need some, it's, it's time to give them a, the, the benefit of someone else's idea. So nothing true, and I'm, there are people who've gone on longer, and there have been people who've done much more in shorter periods of time. But I had this in my mindset that eight to 12 years was kind of a sweet spot. And we were now in that sweet spot. So I'd been thinking a lot about kind of the next phase, what I was going to do for the next phase. And I had thought of it as being a decrescendo phase. I thought it was going to go back to more uh, research, but actually more teaching and just kind of settle into, you know, being an old professor and, you know, getting some arm patches, elbow patches for my coat and teaching classes. And uh, uh, so that was kind of what I was thinking about back in my mind. The call came about Ohio State, and my uh, uh, friend colleague said, Gee, this would be a really good opportunity, so at least you ought to think about it. So I thought, let's think about it. And I got a call from the person who was doing the search process here. Um, we'd set that up. And they said that they were doing an unusual search process. So instead of starting with a large group of people and winnowing it down, uh, so there'd be airport interviews and all that, they started with a large group of people and then on paper got down to who they thought the finalists were. And we're going to do it the other, in the reverse order. So they were going to start with who they thought would be, would look like the best candidates for them. And then if those didn't work out, then they'd kind of expand the pool rather than going the other way around. So that was an interesting thing. So I felt at the beginning it was a serious conversation because that they were saying, gee, we're going to start where we think we want to be. And we had a wonderful conversation. Now we were scheduled for half an hour. We went on for... Uh, uh, much longer than that and weren't done at the time that we finished and it was great and and so that led to an invitation to come out and meet a few people and I took a red eye you know and uh, uh, with California to Newark to Columbus and then uh, talked to people all day but they were fascinating people I had great conversations from the very very beginning I knew about the university of course I'd worked with uh, uh, Gordon Gee for years we were on committees and things together, small ones even, where I'm mean, just a few of us. and So I, I had colleagues here, and I, I knew the institution, of course, but I'd never thought about being here. And this was letting me meet the people who were the trustees and leaders, and they seemed great. And then uh, my wife and I came back a few months later and met faculty and students, and they were terrific. And we uh, thought these would be wonderful people to work with, and Columbus would be a great city to live in, and this seems like one of those uh, uh, magical opportunities. So that's, that's how it worked. So did they give you any feedback throughout that process on the identifying traits that really separated you from the other candidates within the pool and kind of led you to being the one selected for the position? A little bit. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they do a little bit of that tonight, but you, they would have asked me the same question, though. They said, what, 
we have all these people. What what do you you know what's and I think that um, the, a couple of things were seen as um, uh, important. I think, and that would be more what they had looked at at the very beginning. Uh, and I think that our experience in Southern California had been uh, sort of notably successful. So I think that was an important thing. We had the experience of running a campus not as big as Ohio State, but half as big. It was a three billion dollar budget and. Uh, 30,000 students, and so the, we've been successful there. I'd been on, I was on the NC2A board at the time, so I had some experience with sports. The team, we were only Olympic sports, but had um, several national championship Olympic sports teams, and so I had at least uh, some familiarity with athletics, and uh, I'm, that, that was something. We had an academic medical center. We'd built a hospital. We'd built a laboratory building, so we'd done that. We'd had millions, actually billions of dollars of construction so, so I nicely had experiences relevant to this institution. And then uh, both my wife and I were interested in this opportunity. I think that meant a lot uh, to them as well. And then uh, they were great people. So I think those things all together uh, worked it out, made it work out. And then once you accepted the position, what does that process look like? Like what were some of the um, difficulties and some of the peak points of you know your first couple months or days or weeks on the job and does the process work where like you bring another team members around you or you get accumulated who's already there yeah I think this is done different people do things different ways and maybe this is personality or circumstance universities tend not to replace lots of people quickly that's just one of our that's a vibe so some people come in and say I need everybody new everybody here go away Others, and I think more commonly, work with the people who are there as long as that uh, is okay. And I, uh, if, if I, as I describe this to myself, whether or not this is true, I, I describe it to myself, is I had so much training and so much time as a medical doctor, I saw patients actively. I tend to think about fixing problems. So I wouldn't just make it everybody else's fault and get rid of them. I'd figure, what, how can we make this all work? How can we work together? So. And maybe that comes from the, the beginning things I told you about being put in a position with being given the staff and then said, make, make, help, help the staff work better, make this all work. So uh, the idea here for me was really to get to learn from the people who were here about the traditions and policies and procedures and then work with them and then try to and contribute in some way to having us do even better. So that's the, that's the, the, the goal, that's the hope. And, we could have a narrative that looked at ways that's actually worked for us and have worked nicely. There have been some uh, challenging things that you know that right away we had a, um, uh, uh, I'd been in this office I think with my second week and I received the report on um, the follow-up of, of investigation that had started before I arrived on uh, some of the goings-on in the uh, inside the marching band and you know that was um, uh, unpleasant and uh, I don't want to say this in the wrong way. It was um, it was straightforward, but unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So you know we uh, so that I would have uh, drastically or dramatically preferred that uh, uh, to have not uh, had to happen. But you know we didn't have any choice there. So. Right. So one thing I want to focus on, um, you know, towards the la la the second half of this interview is your three core principles at Ohio State, the things that you want to focus on while you're here, and that's access, affordability, and excellence. And uh, starting off with the first one, access, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the American Talent Initiative, which yes. you're on the steering board for. Yes. And 
that actually helps provide access to not just students at Ohio State, but across the country. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about uh, the American Talent Initiative and what your role looks like? Very excited about the American Talent Initiative. And it is, um, <clears throat> so it's uh, basic premise is that uh, we know, and some uh, very carefully done studies have shown uh, that there is talent across the country in the collegiate population, regardless of income level. But if you look at the most successful colleges, the most competitive colleges, uh, 80, 85% of the students in the colleges come from the upper half of the income distribution, and only 15, 20% come from the lower half of the income distribution. And the premise is that talent, in between, and I'm going to use the cohort of 18 to 24 year olds primarily, the talent isn't distributed in that same way. And so that would mean that as a country, we have really talented individuals who are not having full access to the most uh, successful universities in, in the country. We find that when individuals are at more successful in, uh, institutions, and successful here is, gra is uh, uh, defined as higher graduation rates, they tend to graduate at higher rates. If the same individuals by study go to less successful institutions, they tend to graduate at rates closer to those institutions' graduation rates. So if you go to a place that has 85% graduation rate, like Ohio State, you're more likely to graduate than if you go to a place that has a 50% graduation rate. And we found that that distribution of upper and lower income students also divided itself so that the, the lower income students who were just as talented and qualified as uh, uh, anyone were tending to go to institutions with lower um, graduation rates and then not finishing at, at the rates that they could. So. That, that's first, so making opportunity available broadly to people no matter what the zip code. Second, most my, of my colleagues, I have been at this now since 12 years, so I have no people in, the business, in this realm. Uh, all of us have programs to help make college affordable for people from the lower half of the income distribution. Almost none of us exhaust all of those programs. We, don't, we leave scholarship money and opportunity on the table every year because no one applied or showed up or whatever it could be. And nationally, the billions of dollars are left on the table every year. So even if we do all we can on our campus, there are federal and other programs that students tend not to take full advantage of. And they leave with debt that they wouldn't have to have if they, their needs had been met more. And so the American Talent Initiative is a group of colleges getting together voluntarily to do what they can to make more widely known opportunities available on their campuses for students across the income distribution, but particularly focusing on students from the lower half of the income distribution, um, and doing what they can to enroll a greater proportion of those students, greater number of those students, I don't want to say greater proportion, I'll get to that in a second, greater number of those students, to make sure that they um, are retained and graduate, because those students tend to graduate at lower rates and are retained at lower rates, and so we want to close the achievement gap. Um, and uh, try to make sure that these opportunities are available to people broadly. There are institutions that have tiny achievement gaps that so low and high income students graduate at about the same rate and are retained at really, really high rates um, and that the debt uh, needs of lower and middle income students are met almost entirely. Those tend to be extremely expensive, extremely, not extremely, but small, extremely expensive private universities. So they can do that in an exemplary way for a small number of people. The goal that we would have is to bond with them and others and to try to do this, do a better job of that for the hope is 50,000 students by the year 2025. 
So um, make the programs that we have available more widely known, work with students who use those programs to make sure that they are supported and can graduate uh, in a timely fashion, uh, share best practices with our colleagues and uh, contribute to a national goal. That's the American Talent Initiative. And on the other end of that spectrum, tuition rates have been you know, skyrocketing for the past several years. But what a lot of people don't know is here at Ohio State, you've done a great job of trying to keep them level and keep them from Yeah, they've been skyrocketing at zero. Uh, they've, they've been, it's, it's been flat, uh, absolutely flat for uh, the last five years here, yes. But, okay, Which I, is I, awesome. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. for people who are trying to you know, get a, a credible education at a level that they can afford without having to yes. worry about increase every year. Um, so what have been some of the things that you've gone about doing to be able to um, keep that at a level of zero yes. and not follow the trend of other universities who are increasing? And on top of that, um, one thing that, that I want to mention tag is team wrestling is a tag team question <laughs> here. Tag team match here. But on top of that, you've actually increased need-based aid as well yes. while maintaining um, the same level of tuition across uh, yes. normal students. So, I mean, that's got to be tough to do. You're spending more money. Where is that? You know, how are you balancing that act? Yeah, so that's, that's a $70 million uh, uh, shift for us, uh, meaning $70 million of um, – cost control and increase in need-based aid over two years for our student body. So we are um, excited uh, about that. It'll be then this next year we'll do it again, so it'll be up to $100 million that in three years. Uh, so so a couple things are important. First, tuition has stayed flat now for five years. And I want to say this in a way that I, whenever I say this, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to say in a way that makes sense, although it makes perfect sense to me, but it's difficult to say in a way that makes sense, but I'm going to do my best. So f flat tuition only goes so far in making college affordable. And as tuition is flat and we have inflation and other things, we begin to erode our margin as we go forward. And we get to the place where the only way we could keep it artificially flat is by decreasing quality. Because you can't, you can't get, there's, there's, no, there's no something for nothing. What we've done originally now to date, is we worked on cutting administrative and controlling administrative costs. So we made up uh, a point of cutting and controlling administrative costs. The state nicely saw that what we were doing, and I want to congratulate and thank my colleagues downtown. Um, and in the last biennium, we had a four and a four and a half percent increase in SSI, state share of instru um, instruction. So, um, uh, uh, so we had a state increase. In fact, we had the largest state increase in ten years. So we were able to do what we could to hold down administrative costs. The state was able to uh, increase their support for higher education, and that uh, ended up in the tuition cost increase being zero. Still great pressure on us, and to the extent that the state could come forward and do similar increases in our um, uh, support going forward, we'd have uh, an ability to continue to move our quality up while keeping tuition flat. State budget isn't finalized yet, We'll see how what they're able to do, but we know there's going to be real pressure there. So we do our best to cut costs. When our state partners are able to help uh, meet the cost of inflation, then we can continue to, to move forward, and that's the way we looked at it. We also looked at money that we were able to save administratively and pumped that directly back into need-based aid, and that's for families really. Well, the families that uh, benefited from this are families up to about $104,000. So. The median income is a little less than $60,000, so the lower half of the income distribution would be $57,000, $58,000 and below. So all of those uh, families receive need-based aid. But we know that for middle-income families that college is uh, quite an expense, 
So we increased the need-based aid up to about $104,000 uh, to make sure we have median income families and below, but also middle-income families around the median up to about um, uh, just over $100,000, and we, we'll still focus on that. And there we saved money and then redistributed the money back to the students and their families. In fact, to be more accurate, we made the commitment to do the redistribution before we knew where the savings were going to come. So we wanted to really hold our, ourselves to a standard to say, Here, here's this money, now we have to find those savings this year coming forward, and we worked hard to do that. And I think that's, I want the, um, we just wanted to make sure that we made a, a bold statement that way, and it's, I, I hope, had a positive impact on our students and their families. So there's a lot of moving parts that go into that and a lot of yeah. um, effort put into collaborating different departments and different organizations across the state to work together to make that happen. So why do you think that Ohio State has been able to do that, but other universities aren't following suit? I mean, it's obviously much easier just to, people will pay it. I mean, they've shown that, so yes. to not put that effort into that area. Uh, well, I, don't, I can't talk about others, and I, I can say what's true for us, and that is that we, we, we say access, affordability, and excellence, and we're interested in all three all the time. So excellence is really important to us. We want to be the best university that we can be. And if you said we could be more affordable or uh, um, by just lowering our quality, we wouldn't think that that was a bargain. That's not that doesn't increase value. I mean, you could have the, the the cost be zero and have no quality, and that's great. But that's not what anybody wants. You you come to this university, uh, particularly a, a prestigious university like this, because of the value that it, it provides. So excellence is a is a, an essential part of that. Uh, value. It's the most important differential uh, uh, for people to come to us. They want to go to the best university that they can. So we think that excellence is really, really important for us. Affordability is important. And what we mean by affordability is that it's affordable. That doesn't necessarily mean cheap. It's not free. It uh, does cost something. And so what we want it to be is that we want that uh, to be affordable so that the quality that you have and the uh, resources that it takes from you to be able to support that seem like a terrific value to you. This is really a, a great value. And we found that our university has been nicely ranked by national organizations as among the top two dozen or so values in higher education uh, in the country. We're very pleased about that. So that's, that's terrific. The American Talent Initiative has a lot to do then with access, and that is that when we have something that's of tremendous value, that's affordable and really, really high quality, we want to make sure that that secret it, it's, that's not a secret from people who could really benefit from it broadly. So we want people uh, to know broadly that this is here and that this is a place where they can come and succeed. And so as we work on access, affordability, and excellence as our own values, as our own things that are important to us, to make us the best university we can be, to make us available to the greatest number of people that we can be available to, and to, to keep us affordable to as many people as possible, that that takes up 100% of our focus on these things. Others do things that are similar. The American Talent Initiative has lots of people who have similar ways of approaching this. And our idea with this is to try to maybe a bit of a Pied Piper. The Pied Piper wasn't the right thing for my colleagues. I, um, we just want to, if we can be leaders in a, a way of showing people how much value we can provide by focusing ourselves on, on these things, we're happy to have so many people join us in that. So I feel good about that. Definitely. And I think, you know, when you speak, Dr. Drake, you can really hear your passion for those three core principles coming across. And um, you're really seeing it across the state. And, you know, in Columbus, we can feel the excitement around Ohio State University, our research into at the James, our, our sports teams. You know, it's just all kind of um, 
you feel like a team even after you've left the school. Great. Right. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask, I know your time is uh, limited with us here, but uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was um, your position as vice chair at the AAU, the Association yes. of uh, American Universities. And um, so what is, can you t talk to us a little bit about the AAU, what yeah. your role looks like and um, how you're preparing to take over as chairman next year? So the AAU is um, uh, an institution made of now 62 universities, a little over 100 years old. Um, Ohio State, an early member. And uh, the AAU, we've been a member for 100 years, uh, I think uh, 1916, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, it's an organization that focuses, focuses on research universities. So these are 62, 60 U.S. to Canadian uh, research-intensive universities. Um, that care about the comprehensive nature of our universities, but also the research and education mission. And so I've been a member of that from my prior institution, so I've not been there for a while, and been on the executive board for a while, a, a membership committee um, uh, for many years, and so I've really looked at the values and the focus of the institution. And, and so this year, vice chair, next year, chair. And there we really are working on representing higher education particularly in Washington, so the NIH and other places, uh, but all, also around the, the country. And we do a couple of things there. One, we represent the interests of higher education to the government. I'm going to say a word about that. Two, we spend time talking with each other, my fellow uh, presidents and chancellors, talking with each other about what we're doing. And I don't, I don't want to overstate this. You, you hear this thing and you'll experience it later in your lives, that jobs are a little lonely at times and that there's nobody else doing quite what you're doing at your place because there's only one of you and and there's nobody to you know to blame or to give it to and whatever so that you you find that at certain times it, it, it becomes a little bit isolating having us all get together and you know share experiences and support can be very very helpful and we all and then we become friends over the years it's a very nice thing so we have people who we um, uh, know and have worked in this um, realm on that have worked very well. Last week was fun. I had, uh, after the AAU meeting, I uh, was interviewed very, very, very much like this, actually, but there were three of us, uh, so uh, I was there kind of representing the middle of the country and public uh, education. My colleague from Harvard was there representing the East and privates. My colleague from Stanford was there representing the West and privates and we were talking really the questions were the same ones that you've been asking and variations of that and it was nice um, that each of us had a colleague to kind of share things with from a, a slightly different point of view and we were in, in active uh, enthusiastic agreement on things over and over again some differences of course but but it's just nice to have colleagues to do those things with and you know we were one of the things we were we talked about last week and we were speaking about when we were in Washington was the importance of the NIH and the importance of basic research for the country. And we were pleased to see that in the uh, latest uh, uh, material that came from Congress that there's where, where we had heard that there was uh, the possibility of a cut to NIH, which would have been uh, devastating and um, bad public policy, devastating and bad public policy, hard to recover from. Um, there actually was a modest increase in NIH. And, that would have been the kind of thing that we'd be working with our congressional leaders to make sure they understood, and we know that they do. They're, they're great supporters of ours. So, so good. That's all good. So as we wrap up from there, I mean, obviously, you've achieved so much. We could keep you around and talk all day, but we, we know you got other yeah, places. Yeah, you can keep around and talk all day, no matter what. I, I uh, would keep talking. <laughs> I will say one more thing. I, I mentioned NIH, so I hadn't remembered this. But, for instance, at the AAU meeting last week, we had a couple of guests. One of the guests was Francis Collins 
who's the director of the NIH. And so it was great to spend time with Francis Collins and then see that our mutual uh, discussions with our members of Congress were able to uh, get at least a modest uh, increase in support of our basic science uh, uh, initiatives. Sorry. Yeah, it's great. No, it's awesome. Um, but I think where we wanted to wrap up with is kind of talk about one question that we kind of give to everybody is um, a theme that we have for our podcast is live uncomfortably kind of stemmed from Tom Ryan, our head coach, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, kind of preached that on us in our, our four or five years here on the team. And we just want to hear a little bit about kind of where you feel that relates to your life and um, pointing back on significant moments where you had to live uncomfortably to achieve all the great things that you've achieved today. We have a commencement in the shoe this uh, weekend. It's going to be great. There'll be 60,000 people. Their warmth and glow will keep us all toasty and happy. Uh, and one of the things that I will be thinking about, I, I, this will be the ninth commencement exercise I've presided over here at Ohio State. Uh, my prior institution, we had nine or ten a year because there was no football, so that all of them were done in the basketball gym. And with guests, it meant that we had to, we did it really uh, school or college by college. So I had a lot of time to listen to commencement speeches. And you remind me of one with your question, and that was the uh, speech given by a student. Uh, and his speech was entitled, uh, Life Begins at the Edge of Your Comfort Zone. And this was a student who was uh, 22. He had that morning been reunited with his mother, who he hadn't seen for four years since he had left uh, Vietnam, where he was born and raised, uh, to come to this country. So he left at 18 to fly over here. His mother hadn't, he hadn't been home. She hadn't been here. Mother uh, reunited that morning. He'd come here knowing very little English. He did, uh, Vietnamese and French were his first two languages. So he had to come and learn a language, had gone through. And then he was giving a speech about what it meant to be a new arrival by yourself as a teenager going through college in an intense environment. And what impressed me about it, he gave a great message speech and all that, but he had asked, I wasn't doing, I didn't introduce him, our vice president for student life introduced him, but he had wanted that person when he introduced him to read carefully the title of his speech because he couldn't uh, pronounce it well. It was too difficult for him to pronounce. When I listened to his speech, I, though the rest of his speech I was uh, quite understandable, he was sitting next to me, and when he was sitting next to me, we were chatting, and I had to look at him to tell what he was saying because he had a very heavy accent. And I learned that why his speech was so clear was that he, for four months, had practiced the speech in the mirror at home to be able to try to enunciate the words so they could be uh, heard clearly. He still couldn't quite pronounce the title. Somehow that was just too tough for him. Uh, <clears throat> and so he was giving a speech to 6,000 people on the day that he was re reunited with his mother for the first time in four years in his third language. And the speech was, life begins when you're at the edge of your comfort zone. And he, at that moment, was totally on the edge of his comfort zone. And I think that that's a real reflection of that. When you really take yourself to your limit and then push yourself to do your very best, um, that those are the times when you're most alive. You felt it in multiple ways. You felt it in competition, you know, and um, he was, uh, feeling it when he was giving the message to people that that's a great thing to do. I was feeling it watching him. And I think that's, I think, and Coach Ryan has been able to teach that to um, uh, many people to the, uh, their great success and, and to our, our unending our pride. So it's been, it's been great. Yeah, Dr. Drake, I, that's a really great answer. I really appreciate your time here today. I think that's where we'll have to wrap up. Um, is there any last things you want to say to our listeners, people of Columbus? 
just to say this, we're doing this, you know, on uh, Wednesday, and uh, graduation is on Sunday, and uh, those times really remind us of the privilege that we have to be involved with and to be supported by an institution as outstanding as The Ohio State University. All right, Conkers. Well, that'll be the end of the episode. Uh, thanks for listening, and go Bucks. If you like that episode, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. Also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor, check out that podcast app you're listening to us on, and go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out, and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout-out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, Check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again, and if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city please reach out to me at mike at conquering there will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode and if you guys could fill that out for us we'd really appreciate it all right folks that's all we got we'll talk to you next week if you could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and i might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but i'll find a way to survive i'll find a way to get the job done yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.